The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. to you hope that people that somebody in the, in the beginning of the chain uh, has had the sense to think about uh, the problem before they get it pushed down to where you don't have any real choices about it. Um, there's, there's no good answer for that. Okay, folks, this is your chance. You've got two uh, experienced Christian doctors here. We've got them for a little less than an hour. Did I, did I answer your question satisfactorily, or have we just got? Please ask. Yeah, I have a question for you. How might be able to answer it? Um, the other day, I was observing in an emergency room, and they brought in a patient who had been listed or reported as DNR to not resuscitate. Um, and the paramedics intubated her. And there was this whole complication because once she was intubated, you couldn't take the tube out. And, um, what are your feelings about DNR? I don't, I don't really understand how that decision is made and how... Well, the decision is made... Um, supposedly, somebody should have asked the patient ahead of time. As somebody came from a nursing home, they should have that kind of uh, information. Somebody should have known. Well, that was the problem. She she was in a nursing home, and the nurses were, uh, it just didn't seem like they were really on top of the situation. Well, that's, that's a problem when a person has determined, has made this self-determinative thing that I don't want this done. Then, actually, if you do things like that, then you leave yourself open for, uh, you know, the whole Everybody who participated in her care after that is really uh, guilty of battery. So, so that's usually a patient's decision? The patient yeah, the, pa the, decide. the patient really, the patient is the one who decides. The physician really should never <clears throat> decide without um, having somebody help with the decision. Not because you can't, but because it's legally, uh, you leave yourself open for a, a lot of liability if you make that kind of a decision yourself. Uh, if a patient has no family and haven't determined for themselves what they would want, then um, you should probably should ask uh, for some physician who's not associated with the treatment of the patient to make that kind of an evaluation. And there are, we have committees in the hospital that, uh, uh, that help make those decisions or were available to help make those decisions if things get out of hand. In other words, they're no, uh, it's like the, uh, is it Budweiser, know when to say when? You know, that's, uh, uh, you really, you, you need to know uh, when you should say, okay, this is enough. Enough is enough already. 
And lots of times people don't see that ahead of time. And the whole idea of patient self-determination is to make that kind of uh, a determination ahead of time, to make it less difficult for uh, people to make the decision for someone. And it comes out, I think it comes out of a litigious uh, attitude that if the person doesn't make uh, the decision for themselves and you make it for them, then you leave yourself open to uh, anybody can come up and say that you shouldn't have done this and file a wrongful death action. And there's some states, and I think in New Jersey is one of them, that uh, anybody can file, anybody remotely connected, you know, second relatives, uh, cousins, uh, second cousins can file wrongful death uh, suits against physicians and uh, hospitals. So it's still, you know, it's gotten out of hand. But if a person comes, interesting, we have a lady who lived in a re retirement home and she had, uh, you know, her living will uh, was do not intubate me, do not tube feed me, do not uh, resuscitate me. Well, she comes to the hospital with a problem with her mitral valve. And she's so short of breath that she can't uh, do anything. She's had rheumatic fever in the past, and uh, she can't walk to the bathroom. But if we do an operation on her, then uh, she very well may get better and be able to live a functional existence. You know, she's 76 years old, but she's, she's a good 76. She gets up and she wants to do things more than she's allowed that she can do. Uh, the last six months, she's just you know, been sliding down. Uh, well, you know, take me to the hospital, you know, study me, uh, you know, tell me what needs to be done, and we'll see. Well, I talk to her, and she decides, okay, we'll have this operation. I then, you know, I'm going through the chart, and I find all this you know, do not resuscitate, do not intubate, do not tube feed stuff. I said, okay, now we got to talk about this because the conditions that you've expressed uh, these desires under are not the same conditions that uh, you're going to have right after an operation. But after an operation, you're going to be on a ventilator, you'll be intubated for a while. Um, we probably won't have to tube feed you, but if your uh, condition is not uh, you're really good and you're, you know, if you're if your lungs have been suffering from this, it may take several days to get you off the ventilator. Uh, under those conditions, we would want to start to tube feed you when about the second day because you need to keep your strength up. You won't uh, get your strength so you can be off the ventilator if you don't uh, you know, get tube fed because um, you won't be able to eat. And uh, you know, well, what do you want us to do then? And well, she gets kind of mean. And I said, well, here's what, here's what I think we ought to do. This is, you know, I appreciate what you've said, and I understand why you've said it. But if you're going to have a big operation to try to improve the condition of your life, then we have to be able to do the things that we think are appropriate to get you through the operation in the perioperative period. I said, if you have a problem, if you have a stroke and you're not awake and tube feeding would keep you alive, certainly I don't think that that's appropriate and I wouldn't want to institute that. But, you know, yes, you're going to be on a ventilator and yes, you may be tube fed uh, depending upon the kind of problems you have right after surgery. And she allowed us how, uh, you know, that would be okay. But there's changes in one's uh, self-determinative uh, ability depending upon what the problem is. And but it's incumbent upon people who are in positions of uh, uh, medical care to know that if a person has uh, made a determination, what that is. You know, you. In the case that you were talking about, I think that once the line has been crossed, once the tube's put in, then you're committed. Oh, 
you know, well, they, they intubated our Indian ambulance. Mm -hmm. Had the nurses at the nursing home made the paramedics aware of the situation, they would have But the other way to get out of that is once they get them in the hospital, then what kind of treatment do you need to institute? Okay, you put them on a ventilator. Must you feed them? Uh, maybe you should hydrate them so they're not miserable. But it depends how awake the person is. You know, if she's, uh, if they're with it, what you need to do is different from if they're not with it. And that brings up the whole area of the vegetative state. You know, what, uh, when can you legitimately withdraw? Uh, and what do you withdraw? Yeah, what do you withdraw? Those are those are those are difficult decisions that I don't uh, I, I don't know on a I don't think you can generalize right, those kind of things at all. We haven't come to that topic. When we do, I'm going to present a case that there are a number of types of withdrawing which are the moral equivalent of withholding, and that it's not you know a moral crime to stop treatment. There are another a number of kinds which probably would be wrong to just sort of rough and stop it up. I think a lot of Christian ethicists are getting to the point that they, they, they see a grayer and grayer area between withholding and withdrawing, whereas before it was kind of adamant. Once you start, don't ever stop. Um, and that was, that was it, you know. But as you say, it's incredibly complicated. Yeah. Yeah, right, it is, because the, the idea is, I think you're going to talk about euthanasia in some other session, but the ideas are, uh, you know, actively, you know, I wouldn't give somebody a drug that, uh, you know, if somebody's had a stroke and uh, they're they're not going to recover, and they may not be by definition brain dead, but there are people who are not going to recover. And uh, should you, you know, continue to tube feed them? Should you, you know, what's the burden on their family uh, under these circumstances? You know, where, you know, why would they say continue to treat or not continue to treat? I wouldn't give the person a, uh, you know, a lethal injection because you know that's, <laughs> that's uh, uh, but that's not, uh, you know, that's obviously not, uh, you know, a correct thing to do. But they do that in some places in the world. Um, but you could not, you could choose not to begin certain kinds of treatment. You could choose to withdraw things, uh, you know, not treat, or you could choose to withdraw things uh, more or less rapidly. Mm -hmm. I you had to treat some things. Without the intention of other things going wrong, but they, but there's a chance that they will. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, a lot of people that have uh, a variety of kinds of, kinds of cancers uh, have a lot of pain. Pain is one of the major features of some kinds of cancers, and the idea is that one should relieve suffering. Now, you could keep a person al alive a little bit longer by not giving them so much pain medicine because uh, if you give them enough pain medicine so they're not having pain, they just may stop breathing. I don't see that as a bad thing necessarily. But uh, if you give them, if you withdraw their pain medicine or don't give them quite enough, they may hold on for another day or two. And at, uh, at what expense, uh, at what quality? I, mean, I, I remember- When you're saying expense, you're not talking financial expense. No, no not, not, not financial expense. Uh, psychological expense to their family. Um, I remember early on when I was in my surgical training, I was up at the Veterans Hospital in Wilkes-Barre and I had uh, a patient up there that had lung cancer. And uh, you know, no matter how much medication, uh, he was getting lots and lots of pain medicine. And uh, 
it wasn't uh, it wasn't controlling his pain very well. And then, so I gave him uh, you know another dose uh, you know closer together than I normally would have. And uh, you know about an hour later, you know the guy wasn't having any pain, but he stopped breathing and died. You know, and I had a, I had a tough time with that to begin with. You know, should I have treated this uh, uh, person like that? You know, it was a couple of years out of medical school, and uh, uh, you know in the the exuberance of youth, you believe that you can save everybody. Uh, but you know, the more I think about it, you know, I would have been good if somebody had given him uh, you know, more medicine, you know, two days earlier. He wouldn't have suffered through the last two days. You know, I mean, there's uh, uh, suffering is uh, uh, not very therapeutic for you know, very long periods of time. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Lori's mother had uh, pancreatic cancer. And uh, we took care of her at her sister's house for uh, three months or uh, three months before she died. And it was very difficult because Lori's sister uh, wanted her to be awake and to be uh, bright and uh, you know talkative and that sort of stuff. My sister's not a medical person, and my sister thought that when the doctor said, "Well, we can't do anything more for your mom here in the hospital." Take your mom home if we can do anything. If she needs to be readmitted, just bring her back. My sister interpreted that as saying, take your mother home, nurture her, she'll do fine. That's what my sister heard from the doctor. And um, uh, my mother was on a long-acting morphine preparation, and my sister thought perhaps when she took the morphine that she got a little tired from that. And, you know, she was taking a four-hour nap in the middle of the afternoon, and my sister thought that really wasn't what my mother was used to. And perhaps if we did not give her as much pain medication, does she really need it because she's not having any pain? And how do we know that she really needs it because it's a long-acting preparation, so, and we're just giving it to her around the clock, so we're not really seeing if she does have pain. And my mother had absolutely no appetite, but my sister thought that she should continue to eat whether she wanted to or not. So one day I was sitting there with my mother, and my mom was eating very little, and she was drinking these cans of Ensure, which is um, a nutritional supplement, and it can be a complete nutritional supplement. So I'm saying, come on, Mom, drink this. Lee's going to really holler at me if you don't drink this. <laughs> I said, forget it. If you don't want it, don't bother. I'm going to take it out of the room. And, you know, and I thought how crazy our behavior was. And, you know, my sister did withhold her pain medication, and my mother had acute pain. And I thought, you know, she'll never do this again. And the night my mother was dying, my mother's feet were cold and mottled at that point. And, you know, we knew she was dying, and we told my sister this. And then she was having some pain, so we said, let's give her a little more pain medication. And my sister said, will that make her stop breathing? And the the thought was, well, maybe, perhaps, but maybe not, but she won't have pain. So my sister was like, should she or shouldn't she? But she finally said yes when she saw that my mother was indeed suffering. And, you know, the extra pain medicine certainly did not, did not affect my mother's breathing, and that's not what caused her to die. But they actually called the internist who was following my mom to ask that if my mother died in my sister's house, would they be investigated for murder because there was a death in the house. I mean, that's how crazy people think at times like this. And my sister realizes now, we've talked about it, and our relationship is, you know, we're best of friends and still are at this point. She realizes that she was irrational at that point. And knowing this, how, you know, we reacted, both of us, in, in times of stress, um, 
it, it, it's interesting to see how other people will react. So you have to realize, too, that you're not always talking with rational people at a time when they're making, you know, very important decisions. Can you, um, uh, maybe both of you, talk a bit about your, your calling as Christians? Um, obviously, everything you've said is involved with that. Um, but is there a way in which um, you relate your Christianity to your profession? And then, is there, can you also talk about your relationship to other Christians at church and the pastor of the church? How uh, do you, do you in, in any sense, uh, kind of share certain areas of, of labor with your, with your pastor? Do you, are you in completely separate realms? Um, the reason I ask this is because as theological school here, though in this course we have mostly medical people, we do have some theologians, and um, we're preparing to be ministers, and, and I think it's always good to know in our complex world uh, what some of the, uh, uh, the borders are and, and, and territories are, and um, uh, just wondering if you had some comments on the relationship between the, the medical profession and the, the pastoral profession, if you can call it that. <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, from my point of view, they're, to an extent, very much separate. I mean, what I do is very subspecialized. Very, it's a highly technical thing and a highly specialized thing. Um, I'm willing, certainly, to uh, talk to people in the church, but you know, they're more likely, uh, when there's somebody with some kind of a medical problem, they're more likely to talk to Lori as a family physician. Uh, than they are to me because I am so specialized. And people ask me questions and I refer them to her because they're things that uh, I just don't deal with and don't have to deal with. And I, don't, I literally can't pay attention enough to uh, all the things in, in my own field that uh, to, to be reaching out of it. But it's, as, as members of the church, we uh, function as, uh, you know, as anybody else in the church does. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't see us being different. You know, I. I get up. I put my pants on one leg at a time. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I happen to be a physician, but I'm a Christian and a member of a church. Um, I think that uh, I don't bring any particular you know, different insights uh, to everything. I mean, some things. Uh, Sure, uh, because I have a different uh, different knowledge base, but I don't I don't really feel that much different from uh, uh, the other people uh, who are in the church. I have offered if someone in my office feels that they need counseling, if they would like to see a pastor, talk to a pastor. No one has ever said yes to it at this time, but I would go to my pastor and ask him if he would counsel a particular patient for whatever reason, and that's always been an option. I. Sometimes I have a tendency to use, I would rather use a Christian counselor or a Christian past or a pastor than just sending to a, um, a lay uh, counselor. Uh, and our pastor has also come to us for different issues to discuss um, different medical issues so in that respect. But some of the people in the church, um, we've heard this through other people, um, 
don't socialize with us as much as they would someone else because they don't think that they'd be able to talk to us about anything that would interest us because they think that our whole focus, because we're two physicians in one family, would be entirely medicine. And most of our friends, our circle of friends, is not physicians because you have enough of it, you need yeah. a break. Because <laughs> when we are with other physicians, the tendency is to talk about medicine, and particularly when John's with his partners or with mine. So we kind of stay away from that. I know that um, I've worked on a number of medical ethics committees, and one of the things that medical people and scientific people often say is that we need pastoral care, we need preaching just like, like any other Christian. And uh, we happen to be doctors, but you know, there's there's plumbers, there's artists, there's, and um, and we're not some some something special. We we may have a deep connection with something very very important about the human being, but we don't have a corner on um, certain things any more than any other Christian does. And so the church is very important. They also feel that they can participate in the mission of the church. Uh, and that's another question I wanted to ask you is. Um, since the world of healthcare is, is changing so rapidly, you've got legislation on the one hand, but you also have increasing marketing of med medical care on the other hand, and then you have, you know, general awareness of health. A lot of it's distorted, some of it's good. Um, where do you see the mission of the church, or maybe, maybe not even talk about the church, how do you see your own mission as, as Christian professionals in your local area, uh, or um, in the largest sphere, are, are, would you just say that you know you do what you do well, and that's enough for one lifetime, or do you have a? Do you think there's some goals that that Christians ought to be looking at for the next ten years? You know, if, if we had any control, which we probably don't, would we would we like to see you know this change and that change, and would we like to see America move in this direction? And, do you have any comments as Christians on where you'd like to see healthcare going? I'd like to see it uh, going uh, back to where there were physicians and patients and not healthcare providers and clients. Uh, I think that the, the fact that it's become a business uh, has taken away from the physician-patient relationship. And I think that it's the loss of that relationship that has uh, negatively impacted on health care. I see that we're moving more towards a, in the country, towards a national health insurance uh, idea. Um, I think that uh, having had a chance to work in the, uh, the British system of national health, I think that uh, uh, it works fine there, but I don't, think, I don't see it as being uh, particularly viable in the United States because we have a lot of different expectations. The, the English people have lived with adversity for a long, long time and you tell them bad news and they say, okay, yes, thank you, doctor. Uh, you tell somebody bad news in this country, the first thing they do is call their lawyer. And uh, you know, that's, to an extent, that's far-fetched, but it really isn't. Uh, because we feel, in this, and it's not just in healthcare in this country, uh, there's total abrogation of personal responsibility in all, all walks of life, in absolutely everything in this country. If something happens, it's somebody else's fault. Nobody takes personal responsibility for anything that they do. And if it's somebody else's fault, and it's, then it's not my fault, then I should be compensated in some fashion 
uh, for the fact that somebody else made a mistake. Uh, and it's you know, not my problem, it's their problem, and I, they owe me something. And I think if you look at all, all walks of life uh, in the United States, you find that, uh, you know, that that's you know, the way that it is. And it's not just that there's, you know, it's easy to blame it on the lawyers, but it's not just that there's, uh, uh, it's not just the lawyers, it's the fact that uh, people don't think they have any responsibility for anything. Uh, it's somebody else's problem. I'd like to see uh, that, you know, I'd like to see that change. But then again, I think that that's that the Christian veneer is getting thinner and thinner, and that uh, personal responsibility is a, uh, Judeo-Christian uh, idea, and uh, if you look at uh, other ways of looking at things, it's sort of time, chance, and the impersonal universe conspired against me, and uh, that's that's what people think and believe and act, and consequently expect uh, different things than if uh, they have some responsibility for their own care in in all in everything. Uh, I think that uh, we'll, we'll likely end up with some kind of a national health insurance before too long because the, uh, I think that the HIV disease uh, is going to bankrupt the, uh, and drugs are going to bankrupt the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where it's going to go there because there won't be the, the ability, you know, they talk about access to care and a lot of people don't have access to care. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, despite the fact that people don't have insurance, there's really there's not as much lack of access to care as people would, uh, as those who want a national health insurance would have you believe. Care is available. It may be expensive. It may not be easy to get, but you can get care. And I don't believe that by, uh, I think it's going to decrease the level of care for everybody. Uh, to a, to a, a minimal thing, which was would be no mu not much better than it is now, and I think that uh, people who still can afford it will still pay a private insurance and have uh, different kind of care, the same way they do in England. People who can afford private insurance have private insurance on top of their national health, mm -hmm. and for the national health, they'll go to the doctor and get their cold taken care of. But uh, they're not if they need something. Uh, important done, they're not going to want to wait six months or two years uh, until somebody gets their, until their name gets at the top of the list. I mean, the attitude of people in the United States is not conducive to that kind of system. And certainly I get very offended when I see people like uh, Teddy Kennedy, uh, you know, the champion of the poor man, uh, going, you know, wanting national insurance uh, for health care, because I noticed that uh, um, when uh, his son, is it his son? Did he have a cancer in his leg? No, uh, his nephew. nephew. His nephew. Well, when, yeah, his nephew, when he had the, uh, the, the bone cancer, he didn't go to his uh, local hospital. He got shipped right off to the, uh, to the major cancer center. Well, you know, there aren't enough major cancer centers to take care of everybody. So how are you going to ration, uh, how are you going to ration health care? I think that healthcare is going to get rationed, uh, so that we're not going to be able to do everything for everybody like we do now. We just now we do everything for everybody, and uh, the costs keep going up, and we try to keep doing everything for everybody. Nobody said, "Whoa, put the brakes on." And I'm afraid that we get to a national health kind of thing because we "Whoa, take put the brakes on," and people aren't going to like what they see. 
They're not going to like that their grandmother can't have, uh, uh, you know, a heart operation or can't have uh, uh, her hip replaced. So she's going to be bedridden. She can't walk because it hurts so bad. They're not going to like the things that are going to come out of that because you can't keep spending that much of the gross national product on, uh, on medicine. And it's not simply that physicians get paid a lot of money because most of the healthcare dollar doesn't go to the physician. It goes to uh, uh, institutions and uh, the cost of uh, all the stuff that has to be done. It used to be that hospital employees were the worst paid. You know, they paid $3 an hour to uh, push carts around and, uh, or less, that sort of stuff. But hospital employees are, are reasonably well paid at this point. They're not minimum wage employees. So that if you have the, the lowest levels of uh, uh, the workers being paid more money, then uh, everybody above wants to get more money. And uh, uh, so the costs keep escalating higher and higher. Just to keep everybody in the same strata that they want to be on. And I think that that's, I think that's a big cause of uh, increased cost in healthcare. I see that there will be some kind of a uh, mandated uh, national health insurance program of some sort, in probably not uh, in the distant future. And I think it's going to be the fact that we just can't afford uh, to take care of the, uh, the people who are sick. It's not so much that, uh, you know, they, well, AIDS is considered a handicap, um, but why do people that have AIDS lose their jobs? You know, they. Why can't they, why are they homeless? Why do they lose their jobs? Why can't they afford medical care? Well, they lose their jobs not because they've, uh, they don't do them well, but because they're sick. And they miss, time, they miss time from their job. They can't put in the full time that it takes. And if they lose their job, then they lose their health insurance. And so then they can't afford the expensive care. Uh, it costs about between sixty dollars and $100,000 per year per HIV positive patient who has any symptoms. I think that's I think that's about right, mm -hmm. and it gets more expensive the longer you can keep them alive. So if they lose their job and don't have any health insurance, then they lose their uh, uh, then they don't get their treatment. They lose their job. They lose their place to live because you know how who can afford to uh, what landlord or what bank can afford to allow somebody to uh, live in an apartment or a home uh, if they're not going to get paid for it. That's discriminatory. But that's see. That's, uh, it's not that uh, it's considered because they have HIV disease and it's a discrimination against them, not the fact that they can't do their job uh, because they've got a medical illness. All those things add expense into the system. So I think that that will, uh, I think that that's going to take a lot of money. And we don't, we have no idea what the social costs of uh, the drug use in this country is. What's going to happen when these literally tens of thousands of babies who were born addicted to uh, cocaine grow up? I mentioned that in the very beginning. What's going to, they're going to need, they need special schools. You know, it's going to be the rare, the inner city school, it's going to be the rare one that has uh, regular classrooms. You're going to need special, special education for all these children. And nobody knows whether they're going to be functional, useful, be able to you know, be producers. You know, you're either uh, a producer or a, uh, 
product consumer. You're either a producer or a consumer. And everybody, uh, <laughs> everybody produces uh, to, an to a certain extent. But if you're only going to be, or everybody should, but if you're only going to be a consumer, then uh, you know, somebody's got to make up, somebody's got to do the, uh, the producing that you're not doing. And uh, who, who is going to do that? Who's going to pay for it? Because I don't see that, uh, you know, you can't, people just aren't going to live in dormitories. And for the most part, physicians won't refuse to treat if you don't have insurance. There's always a way around it. I treat my office. We have people that come in and have no insurance. They we have an x-ray unit, so if they need x-rays or whatever, we'll do them. Um, you know, we may not get paid. We'll set up a payment schedule of maybe $2 a month after they've paid for a couple months and let us know that there's some goodwill there. We'll just cancel the debt for them. John does the same frequently mm -hmm. with his... So it's, you know, physicians aren't turning people away at the door because they can't afford to pay. But you can't, if you're, if you're running a business and... It is a business. It's a business. Yeah. You, know, you don't get paid in, uh, you get paid in dollars, yes, because you got to spend dollars for gasoline for your car. You got to spend dollars for food. Uh, you don't get a chicken that, uh, you know, for dinner. At Christmas time, we do get quite a few chickens. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you, know, you can't, you can't give away, you can give away your own time to see a patient. And uh, the, you know, that charitable uh, thing is good. I mean, I think it's appropriate. One, one should do that. It's incumbent upon uh, Christians, or physicians, and especially Christians, to do that. But uh, it costs, it costs uh, dollars in other ways than a physician's time. If I agree to waive a fee for an operation that a person needs, it still costs $1,000 to set up the heart-lung machine for the throwaway stuff. You still got to pay the, uh, uh, the anesthesiologists, uh, you know, even if they waive, even if all the fees are waived by everybody, there's, uh, you know, the time that it takes four hours in an operating room is four hours at the, at the hospital could have had somebody else that would have paid uh, to be there. So there's cost uh, in, in everything. Somebody has to pay for it. By waiving your fee, you're helping. But you're not really, uh, it doesn't solve the problem. And then the other thing is the physicians get frustrated because they don't get, uh, they don't get any credit, uh, either financially or uh, socially, for, uh, you know, for waiving fees. And you can't, uh, you can't, you don't really do any charity things anymore because everybody's got some kind of insurance, or most, most people, there's very few real charity things. And it's not, uh, it's not that you need a tax credit for doing charity work, but it would be nice if people would uh, recognize that physicians do that sort of, you know, that do charity work. And in fact, you're prevented by the government from, uh, from waiving certain fees. Uh, one of the, uh, the federal, the CHAMPUS, the uh, military insurance, people, there's a co-payment with that. Uh, you gotta pay 20% or something like that. There were people who were offering to take care of military families during the Desert Storm uh, thing, for and they were going to waive the copayment. They were told by the insurance company they weren't allowed. Uh, it's illegal to waive the deductible yeah, for in, Medicare. In Medicare, it's illegal to waive their to waive the deductible because if you waive the deductible, that means that that's what your fee is. So you're uh, you get into an odd uh, 
reductio, whatever it is. You, yeah, you get down to where if you waive your 20%, well, then your fee is only the 80%. Then you still got to charge 20% of that. If you waive that, then your fee is 80%. You know, you get. Mm -hmm. you, you, you can't do that, no matter how much you want to. So it's, you know, you're prevented uh, from that. And people don't like to have to pay for things that they can't afford it. Some people can't afford it. But you're really left with, uh, uh, the law says, I must charge you this amount of money. I cannot, uh, you know, I cannot waive it. I made a house call on a patient not too long ago, and the daughter was there, and she said, do you think we can cut down on some of the medication? She said, I just went to the pharmacy, and I was only able to get two weeks' supply. The entire month's supply was $413 for one month of medication. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Has um, malpractice insurance uh, been, a, I mean, the rising cost of that been another factor in raising the cost of medical care, or is that just something you hear? It, do, it does raise the cost, but it's not the, uh, it's not as much of a problem uh, in the overall how much the healthcare dollar is, uh, is spent. I, for, I forget what the figures are. Do you remember what the... I don't remember. Now practice is becoming less of a problem. I think they've maxed out their, their rates at this point. Yeah, I, I, they go I, up a little bit every year, but no more than cost of living for maybe the last two yeah. years. So I think they're maxed out. The surcharge is greater than the actual malpractice. Oh. Mm -hmm. The surcharge this past year was 55%, and the malpractice was 45% of your total cost. And you have to pay the surcharge. Yeah. The uncompensated care, free care given by hospitals. Uh, in New Jersey, if you are paying, if you have insurance, your cost is automatically bumped up when you go into a hospital 20% because of the amount of free care that they have to give. Yeah, it's got to be. You got to pay your nurses. Somebody's got to. Uh, you can you can waive a certain amount of fees. You know, physicians can get along on less income than they have, but you can't waive things below a certain level. And you know, people expect to be nurses expect to get their paychecks. Uh, you know, the food service people expect to get their paychecks. Cost money. It was like $500 million in the last year in the state of New Jersey. They, they voted to uh, pay it, and then they found out it was $500 million. And they, the legislature stood back and said, Wait a minute, we can't afford that. Uh, so you're going to get uh, you know, some portion of that, plus there'll be a big surcharge on everybody, on paying customers next year. So it unfortunately boils down to dollars. That's the bottom line. You look under the last, down at the bottom of the pie, you scrape away all the leaves, and you look under the last rock, and there's a dollar bill. And that's, uh, that's what it boils down to. You have relationships with, with patients, but you also have relationships with, a, with other doctors or medical personnel. Um, are you, how free are you to share your Christian faith with them? Are you stigmatized? Hey, watch out for John. He's, he's a Christian. He says where he thinks he believes, and that sometimes God heals people, and rather than we have to do it all. And, yeah, I think that uh, to some extent, uh, you know, that's true. Um, you know, I would, you know, I think people know, people I work with know that uh, I'm a Christian, know that I go to church. But as far as proselytizing, uh, 
you know, I don't do a great deal of it. Uh, but I think that it's my responsibility to, uh, as I do things, to do them on a moral basis and for reasons that uh, you know that I understand. If people ask me, uh, you know, why did you decide that? Then it's important to tell them, uh, you know, why I did that. But uh, I'm not sure that it's important or that it's appropriate to say. Uh, I'm going to make this decision because uh, I'm a Christian. Uh, I think that uh, that people, when when they see that, um, that's not so much the letting your light shine as opposed to uh, uh, I thank you that I'm not like other men, and uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't I don't really know how to work it out well in each circumstance. I think it's important to, you know, as one uh, lives one's life, that it should be exemplary. Um, and people should you know, should notice a difference in you, or me, compared to uh, uh, some other physician. But the, the difference uh, should be obvious. It, I'm sure it always isn't. Uh, isn't always obvious. Um, but I don't think that uh, you know, I need to you know, have a picture of Jesus in the office uh, or a Bible on my desk or you know, something like that. I don't, I don't know that that's, uh, that's necessary. Although when I talk to patients, because uh, my relationship is basically uh, with, with patients um, professionally, with the, the doctors it's, that I work with, yes, it's... Uh, it's professional, but it's not really a. It's not really social either. That you know, I'm not going to do something because I'm. You know, I. And I told him this morning I've got to go. Uh, go talk at uh, Westminster Seminary, and uh, you know, so they know. I mean, I, well, I'm, uh, kind of thing. So they know what I'm doing. I mean, they know uh, the people that uh, I work with know that on Sunday morning I want to go to church. The residents in the hospital know that I try to call them on Sunday before I go to church because I want to be able to have a certain time. Uh, you know, don't call me between 11 and 12 unless it's an emergency uh, because I want to, you know, I'm going to be in church. Um, that sort of thing. So they they know, and hopefully by the things that I say and do, uh, they recognize it's somewhat different from somebody else who uh, may not be a Christian. But no, I don't wear a sign or. Uh, or a little, uh, you know, a little fish on my lapel, uh, as, as some people do. I don't feel, I don't feel called to do that, because I don't want, I want people to see uh, first that I'm a physician and, and an excellent physician, and not to be drawn necessarily, or put off necessarily by some outward uh, manifestation. I have more of an opportunity in my practice than for that. My partner is Jewish, and we discuss Christianity, um, sometimes at more length than others. We had an opportunity, our youth group was going down to see uh, a service conducted by Jews for Jesus. And we had a conference in Center City at the same time that weekend, and we were going to be in a Center City hotel, and we were going to meet the kids. So I invited him. You know, he's very kind, never says no to me. 
he said, no. <laughs> I, I was shocked. I, I really was. I was surprised, but you know, I had no interest in it. When we were moving our office building, there was a, a little Gideon uh, New Testament for nurses. So I said, you know, I've read this. Perhaps you'd like to read it. It's in his desk. I don't think that he's ever looked at it, but at least it's there. So maybe someday it'll, you know, it'll be inspired to read it. The, um, I have uh, a staff of six in my office, and uh, two of the girls are Christians. They're Catholics, but they're Christians, and we talk about it. The others, I'm really not sure. One of the uh, things that we teach around here is that there should be no dualism. Um, you know, the sacred-secular dichotomy is, is out of place. And, I think what you've expressed is uh, is very much anti-dualistic. That is, that your your faith is real, but it's incarnate in who you are and what you do, rather than uh, wearing it in a way that's not related to what you do. Not not that there aren't opportunities sometimes that seem unrelated or or whatever, but that you're not you don't have two worlds. You're spiritual world over here which is full of signs and, and talk, special language and then your professional world over here which is kind of what you what you do and um, it, it's not always easy to to, to, to do that to, because we uh, put ourselves under a lot of pressure <laughs> integrating everything and it's easier to talk about integration than we, uh, we really appreciate your, uh, your being with us, and uh, and uh, we hope that you'll come back another time. And um, we uh, we hope that uh, anybody who um, has uh, a Christian calling in the medical profession will, will be as as well integrated and well-rounded as, as you all. And, and uh, so thanks for thanks for doing this, and um, we will. Uh, that's right. For those of you who are going into medical things, I should plug the Christian Medical Dental Society. If you're uh, not involved in it, it's uh, something that's at least worth thinking about. Um, Some excellent programs. How do they? How can one plug into that? Um, <laughs> anybody in it? Okay, she can come. <laughs> Yeah, there's, uh, they have meetings, uh, this is a fall meeting coming up actually in the uh, middle of November. Last, last year, the beginning of November, they had a uh, seminar where uh, Tim Johnson from ABC and uh, Jake Coop had a uh, talk and debate. They had like 400 people at this uh, thing at the, the hotel and a dinner and all that sort of stuff. And the dinner speaker was a thoracic surgeon who contracted AIDS from a patient. Mm -hmm. And he spoke about his experiences. Quite interesting.